Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. While I won't be going through verses 21 to 23 of chapter 1, I do want to include that in our reading together. And I want to show you some declarations about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in creation and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the church. And of course, many commentators, theologians, Bible teachers believe that Colossians 1, 15 to 20, if not verses 21 to 23 as well, was an original Christian hymn of the faith. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. We'll read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. You follow along as I read. He, speaking of course of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might, have, he might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Heavenly Father, as we are drawn to your word tonight, May we be impacted greatly by the declarations that you give to us about your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the supreme one over all creation and in the church. We ask that he would meet with us here and that we would be so impacted by the truth that we would pray to, believe in, and announce to the world that Jesus Christ is supreme. We pray in His name. Amen. If you have your seatbelts, I'd like to encourage you to see 11 declarations of Jesus Christ and His supremacy. Five as it relates to his supremacy over creation, and six as it relates to his his supremacy in the church. And the first declaration of Jesus Christ as we read here 
in verse 15 of Colossians 1 is that Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God. Do you see that listed there? In staccato-like fashion, all of these declarations going as quickly as they do announce the supremacy of Christ. And here, firstly, over all creation. And the first thing that Paul says here about the supremacy or the preeminence or the majesty of Christ is that He is the image of the invisible God. That's the first thing Paul wants to to establish regarding Christ's supremacy. And that because of His relationship to God the Father. He's supreme, says Paul, because He's the perfect image of of God. We actually talked about that this morning here in our church from John 17, that in a world of would-be saviors and supposed deities and self-proclaimed messiahs, Paul says Jesus Christ is the one and living and only exact representation of the true God. The word actually here, perfect image, is icon, and it means likeness or copy. And that is to say that Christ is the perfect icon, the perfect image, the perfect likeness, the copy of God the Father. That is to say his nature and his character is the perfect representation to the world of who God the Father really is. I can't resist. Go in your Bibles to John 17 and what we learned this morning. In John 17 verse 6, that great priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus when he says in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. You remember in John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then verse 18 says that Jesus Christ is the exegete of the Father. He perfectly represents who the Father is to the world. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. He's the visible expression of the unrevealed God. That's why Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's why Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. This is is why Christ is supreme. That's why He told His disciples over and over again, just like He told Philip in John 14, if you've seen Me, you've seen whom? The Father. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I not been with you so long, Philip, and yet you have not come to know Me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The question may have been coming at the Colossians by the religionists of Paul's day, how can your God be known? And Paul would say, both to the Colossians as he did to the Romans in Romans 1.20, he has invisible attributes and I am here to reveal what those attributes really look like. 
in His person, in His works. And here Paul says, if you want to see what God really, really looks like, look at Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God the Father Himself. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. Number two, Christ is the leader over all creation. Notice how Paul says this in the second phrase of Colossians 1.15. He's not only the image of the invisible God, but He's the firstborn of all creation. That is, He's the leader over all creation because that word firstborn, prototokos, it doesn't just mean first in time. It does mean that in some contexts of our Bible, like a particular son was the first one born to his family. He would have been, of course, the firstborn. But it's more than that in so many other contexts. And here it means that he has the supremacy of rank. The supremacy of rank. And I know a lot of people have stumbled over this particular text. I've talked with Jehovah's Witnesses far and wide Um, one in my family was a Jehovah's Witness for a number of years and I used to go toe-to-toe with them regarding this idea that someone who is first born is someone who is more than just someone who was born first. This is is Christ being said to be supreme. He's pre-existent. He's unique as well as having superiority over all creation. That's what it means. Prototokos, frequently used in our Bibles to indicate not just temporal priority, but the sovereignty of rank. Romans 8.29, if you want to write some of these verses down. Romans 8.29, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That doesn't mean that he was the first one to be born. It means that he had superiority of rank over the brethren. 1 Corinthians 15.20, from the dead, the first fruits of those <clears throat> excuse me, who are asleep. The first fruits. Acts 26.23, by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light. And Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's where you see it. Superiority of rank. He's in charge. And in fact, Colossians 1.15 may actually be uh, Paul's own divine commentary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of Psalm 89.27, which says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is Christ. This is our Christ. He is the firstborn, the leader over all creation. Number three. Number three. Christ is the creator of all things. And I can't tell you how many times I have read this particular passage and others just like it. Ephesians, Hebrews, that says He's not only the image of the invisible God, He's not only the firstborn of all creation, But, according to the first part of verse 16, for by him or by means of him, all things were what? Created. He's the creator. I mean, how can you stumble over the idea of the divinity of Jesus Christ, that Christ is God in human flesh, when it says he's the creator? This is clearly what it says. 
All the laws and all the rules and all the regulations and all the purposes and all the ends and all the goals of all of that which has been made owe their origin to Him. He's not in all things, but all things are in Him. God's creation, just like our election in Christ, take place in Him and nothing takes place apart from Him. He's the agent. He's the goal of all creation. Everything we see in our world and everything unseen has been created by Jesus Christ. You remember He is called in John 1.1 the Lagos, right? And in Psalm 33.6 it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of His mouth all their hosts. I mean, when Paul says to the Colossian believers and to all the religious syncretists of Paul's day there in Colossae, when he says Christ is creator, that was stunning. It was a stunning claim. It's an astounding claim by Paul. And there were no doubt hundreds of theories at that time about the origins of the universe. Still are, right? But all we have to do is look around our world and see that an eternal being created all of this, and his name is Jesus Christ. For instance, a few little facts that uh, sort of make us perceive of ourselves as just a drop in the bucket. Listen to this. We learn from the astronomers that the Milky Way, the disc-shaped galaxy to which our sun belongs, is a family of more than 100 billion stars. And these scientists say that there may be as many as 100 billion other galaxies in the universe. And they believe that the billions of these galaxies, billion stars, may have hundreds of millions of planets like our Earth. It's amazing, this creation of Jesus Christ. The sun is so large that if it were hollow, it could contain more than one million worlds the size of our earth. There are stars in space so large that they could easily hold 500 million suns the size of ours. There are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. And there are at least 100 million galaxies in the known universe. Think of it by zeroing it down to something very, very tiny. Imagine that the thickness of just a page of your Bible, just take that Colossians 1 and just hold it up to yourself, finger to thumb, and just wave it around. Just see the, the thin thickness of that paper. Very, very tiny. Imagine the thickness of that page you hold in your hand. Imagine that that's the distance from the earth to the sun, 93 million miles. The distance to the nearest star, four and a half light years, would be a 71-foot high shelf of paper. Stacked upon that little piece of paper, 71 feet high. And the diameter of our own galaxy, 100,000 light years, is a 310-mile stack of paper, while the edge of the known universe is a pile of paper one-third of the way to the sun, 31 million miles. I mean, it just, it just blows the circuits 
you're sitting here trying to contemplate creation and Jesus, Christ's, Jesus Christ as the creator, and you say, uncle, enough. Our galaxy. The distance from our galaxy to the nearest one is nearly 1,500,000 light years. It's the distance light will travel in 1.5 million years, going 186,000 miles each second. Outside the Earth's planetary system, the nearest star to the sun is Proxima Centauri at a distance of 4.2 light years away. The most distant body that can be seen with the naked eye from the Earth is the great spiral galaxy and the star cluster or constellation known as Andromeda, nearly 2 million light years away. This is, this is amazing. And then you go just from creation to the human body. Each square inch of human skin, just a square inch of human skin, consists of 19 million cells, 60 hairs, 90 oil glands, 19 feet of blood vessels, 625 sweat glands, and 19,000 sensory cells. That's pretty ugly, isn't it? Every person has nearly 400,000 radioactive atoms disintegrating into, e- into other atoms in his or her body each second. But there's no need to worry about falling apart. Each body cell contains an average of 90 trillion atoms, 225 million times that of 400,000. I mean, it just... Blows your mind. I mean, the sensitivity of just the human eye alone is so keen that on a clear, moonless night, a person standing on a mountain peak can see a match being struck as far as 50 miles away. And much to their amazement, astronauts in orbit around the Earth were able to see the wakes of ships. It's just amazing. 60,000 miles of vessels carry blood to every part of the adult body. The kidney consists of over one million little tubes, and the total length of the tubes in both kidneys runs to about 40 miles. I don't think I have to go on. Jesus is the creator of all things. Number four, he's the ruler of all beings. Notice what Paul says, For by him, by means of him, all things were created, notice this, in heaven and on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, I don't know, but there apparently was in Colossae an angel cult, an angel worship system. Look at chapter 2 down in verse 18. Paul's giving them a warning and he says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of what? Angels. There might have been uh, angel worship going on in this syncretistic culture. And who is Christ? He's the one who is the head of all thrones, all dominions, all rulers, all authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. I don't know if this is a reference to the hierarchy of angels, 
But I know this, they all had their beginning through Him and for Him. This is, this is our Christ. This is the designation of our Christ. This is another, number five. Christ is the self-existent sustainer of all the universe. He's the self-existent sustainer of all the universe. Verse 17. And He is before all things. He's before all things. What does that mean? Altos. He. He Himself. That's the, the Greek text. He and no other. He had His existence and His existence is before all things. The same phrase is used in James 5.12 and 1 Peter 4.8, translated above all or beyond all things. Paul is speaking of the superiority, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the entire universe. No wonder he says at the end of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. I like this translation. And in him all things have their coherence. It's the word for cohere. To stand together. To hold together. The writer to Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 1.3 He upholds the world. He upholds all things by the word of His power. Can you imagine a being in the universe who upholds the world just by the word of His power? Do you remember when those disciples were right there on the shore after Jesus' resurrection and He was experiencing His post-resurrection teaching ministry with them and they had tried to catch fish and they hadn't caught anything and then they saw what they assumed might have been an emanation out there and they realized that it was the Lord. And when the Lord came to shore, He said, Have you caught anything? And of course, He knew the answer. And then it said, he made breakfast for them. I can imagine this is how Jesus made breakfast. Breakfast. (laughs) And it was the best breakfast anybody ever ate. He can uphold the world, the universe, by the word of his power. He was in that boat and there was a storm raging. And what did he say? One word in the Greek text. Stop! And it did. In fact, it probably stopped so instantaneously that the ripples never even made it to the shore. This is our God. This is our Christ. He is Himself the unifying band which encompasses everything and He holds it all together. That's our Christ. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. He's the leader over all creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the ruler over all beings. He's the self-existent sustainer of all the universe. So I ask you tonight, do you recognize Jesus Christ in this way? I don't know everyone here. You may be a visitor to this church for the first time tonight. You may be a visitor being invited by one of the other churches. Do you recognize Jesus Christ in this way? 
And I guess even more importantly, do you submit to him as the supreme creator of the universe, including his creation of you? Have you bowed the knee to him in repentance and faith? Have you turned from your sin and embraced the supremacy of Jesus Christ as Lord? By the way, he's asking no less than for you to confess that you've broken his law, you've violated his will, and in fact what you've done by your sinful life is you've installed yourself as Lord. That's why Jesus said in Luke's gospel, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? I mean, there are a lot of people who would say, yes, well, maybe you've convinced me, or maybe I already believed or responded to what you've asked tonight, and Jesus Christ is who I acknowledge. Are you acknowledging Him as the Lord of your life? It's one thing to acknowledge Him as the Lord of creation. It's entirely another thing to acknowledge Him as the day-by-day Lord of your very life. These are those five declarations of the supremacy of Christ over creation, and they are grand. How about His supremacy over the church? This is amazing. Look at verse 18. Paul takes a shift here from verses 15, 16, and 17, and he now turns to the idea not only of Christ's preeminent his preeminence, his supremacy over all creation, but now even of the church. Colossians 1:18, and he is the head of the body, the church. And I suspect the very first thing that Paul wants to communicate to the Colossian Christians, especially them, is Christ's relationship to his church, Christ being supreme as the head of the body. And you know, there are many analogies, many metaphors that the New Testament uses to describe Christ's relationship to his people. Many analogies. Here's one. A holy royal priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices to God, right? First Peter, a chosen race belonging to God, First Peter, a separate, sanctified nation set apart whose king is the eternal God, a temple which is inhabited by the Spirit of God, a set of branches vitally connected to Jesus Christ as the vine, a flock led by the good shepherd, the great shepherd, a household or family of faith sharing the common life of Jesus Christ. But I dare say there is no analogy, there is no metaphor that speaks more glowingly of the unique relationship between the head, Jesus Christ, and the church is body. In fact, it is nowhere in existence in the Old Testament. You'll look in vain for a reference in the Old Testament to the idea of the spiritual body of God. That's reserved for New Covenant Christians. It's amazing. What an apt analogy. We're the body, He's the head. Kephale, he's the authority. It means he's in charge. His elect, his, his church, his, his body, they're his body. Individually limbs and, and organs and by being under his control and obeying his direction, they live out what it means to believe in his supremacy. The conception of the church as the body of Christ I think helps us to understand how Paul 
can not only speak of believers as being in Christ, but also of Christ being in them by being the body's head. Make no mistake about it. He's in charge. His resurrected life animates His body. He's the supreme head over the church because He is the head of the body, the church. Here's a second one. Christ is the cause of everything. I mean, Paul just can't stop with these superlatives about the supremacy of Christ. Yes, He's the perfect image of the invisible God. He's the leader over all creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the ruler of all beings. He's the self-existent sustainer of the universe. He's the head of the body, the church. And He is the cause of everything. Notice what it says. He, in verse 18, is the beginning. Oh, I love that. He is the beginning. Inasmuch as he, Arcane, is the beginning. And Arcane, that, that Greek word, the beginning, it, it speaks of his primacy. It does not mean he was the beginning of God's creation. And that's where so many of these cultists got, get tripped up because they assume that when it talks about Jesus Christ and beginning, they assume that that means he is the beginning of creation. No. He is beginning as to the arcane. He is the beginning. He started it. That's what you have to believe. That's what you affirm. He is the originator of life. He's the cause of everything. I like what one writer said. He is the path breaker who holds the key of death and Hades. He has authority over life and death. Why 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Only God can do that. Only God has the power of life and death. That's why Jesus said in John's gospel, these words that I'm speaking to you, they are spirit and they are life. He speaks life into dead souls. He grants life. The very animation of life is brought to us by Christ. He's the cause of everything. Everything originates from Him. Thirdly, He's the pioneer of all believers. What do you mean? Look at that next phrase in verse 18. He's the firstborn from the dead. You remember firstborn. He's the prototokos. It's emphasizing his supremacy from the dead. He's the first. He's the pioneer. His resurrection makes him the forerunner. He wasn't, he wasn't the, the one who was resurrected from the dead as though it was first in time, although the idea has its relevance. The idea here is that he's the very pioneer of resurrection, so that when His resurrection occurred, what happens to all other resurrections? They occur. In fact, you remember, Christ's resurrection was so powerful 
that when he was resurrected from the dead, Matthew's gospel said that there were some other people who had already died and they were resurrected and they walked back into Jerusalem. Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And you know how he did it? It's another one of those uh, short phrases. Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine Lazarus walking out of there? No, hopping out of there. He was dead. Four days dead by this time, the King James Version said, he stinketh. He was brought from death to life. And Jesus is the pioneer of all resurrections. He's the triumph over all resurrections. He's the firstborn. Here's another one. He's the preeminent Lord. Look at the latter part of verse 18. That in everything He might be, what? Preeminent. Even that term, it's almost a sort of a onomatopoeic, right? He is preeminent. You can hear the, the classiness, the highness, the nobility, the majesty, even in the Word. He is preeminent. Why? Because He's the head of the body, the church. Why? Because He's the originating cause of everything. Why? Because He has the primacy of rank in that His resurrection ensures all resurrections from the dead. And did you notice that little phrase? The firstborn from the dead, that in everything. So that, for the purpose that, He and no other, He and He alone might become preeminent in everything. Is He preeminent in your life? Is He the chief? Is He occupying the foremost place in your life? Is He first? Remember, if this is true, if this is a hymn, this is a hymn exalting the preeminence of Jesus Christ. He's supreme. Whether in creation or in the church, Christ is preeminent. He alone, universally, He alone, ecclesiologically, is everything. I suppose that's exactly why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, at the last part of verse 11, these words, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, Here's Christ. Christ is all and in all. He's everything. You you can't be more all than all in all. That's who He is. This is our Savior. This is who we sang to. This is who we love. This is who we adore. This is that one. This is why the Bible speaks of this Christ This is why Christ is preeminent in all the Scripture. Points to Him. You may have heard this before. In Genesis, He's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, He's the Passover lamb. 
In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the trust, trusted prophet. In First and Second Kings and Chronicles, he's the reigning king. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the builder of the broken wall. In Esther, he's the Mordecai. In Job, He's the everlasting Redeemer. In Psalms, He's the Lord our Shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, He is true wisdom. In Song of Solomon, He's the real lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, He's the Prince of Peace and suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, He's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, He's the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, He's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, He's the eternal husband forever married to the backslider. In Joel, He's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. In Amos, He's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's the savior. Jonah, he's the great missionary. Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. Nahum, the avenger. Habakkuk, the evangelist pleading for revival. Zephaniah, the Lord mighty to save. Haggai, the restorer of the lost heritage. Zechariah, the fountain open in the house of David for sin and cleansing. Malachi, the son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. Matthew, the king of the Jews. Mark, the supreme servant. Luke, the son of man. John, he is God. Acts, he's the great miracle worker. Romans, he's the justifier of the ungodly. First and second Corinthians, the power and wisdom of God. Galatians, the perfect fulfillment of God's law. Ephesians, the beloved one who elects us to salvation. Philippians, the Lord and joy personified. Colossians, the preeminent in creation in the church. First and second Thessalonians, the one who will meet his bride in the air and who battles the antichrist for us. First and second Timothy and Titus, the great shepherd who pastors his people. Philemon, the one who grants us eternal forgiveness. Hebrews, the creator and high priest who is mightier than the angels. James, the perfect law keeper and doer of the word. First and second Peter, the faithful sufferer who can follow the shepherd and guardian of our, our souls. First, second, and third John, God who's manifested in the flesh, the name with truth and love. And Revelation, the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But wait a minute, Paul's not done. (laughs) Verse 19. For in Him, notice this phrase, meditate on it with me, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Amazing statement. God the Father, the implied subject, was well pleased to have His very fullness dwell in, live in, settle down upon, take up residence, take up one's permanent abode in Christ. He's the place in whom God the Father in all His fullness was pleased to take up residence. And lastly, He's the agent of God's reconciliation to sinners. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the cause of everything, the pioneer of all resurrected believers, the preeminent Lord, the possessor of all God's fullness and the agent of reconciliation to sinners. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself, how many things? All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of His cross. Reconciliation. Taking 
hostility. The hostility between God and ourselves and instead granting us friendship. Reconciliation. Restitution to a new state of being from that previous state where we were fallen. This is This is the great head, cause, pioneer, preeminence, possessor of God's fullness, agent of God's reconciliation to sinners. This is our Christ. This is why we love Him so. He is our all in all. Let's pray. Father, If Jesus Christ, your Son, is the very satisfaction to you, and He is, then how is it that He is not our satisfaction? If you would say about Him, this is my beloved Son, Hear Him. Listen to Him. If Jesus Christ can say about you, Heavenly Father, I love Him and He loves me, then how could it possibly be that He is not our all in all? May He be supreme in our lives as Creator and as Lord of His church. In His name we pray. Amen.